Hello, and thank you for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church Maryville here in Maryville, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can visit our website to find out more information about our church or to find our full audio archive with all of our messages. So you can find all of that at www.vineyardchurch.us, or you can also subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. Hey guys, good to see you. I love the lemonade stay. That's donations only. That's brilliant. That's code for seriously overpay for the lemonade. <laughs> Don't you think that's the way it should be? That's really good. Uh, hey, uh, my name's Aaron. I'm pastor here. As Sharon said, we're wrapping up a series we've been doing the last few weeks called Uprising. Let me take a moment to pray, and then we're gonna we're gonna dive right in. Lord, we just uh, welcome your presence into this place. We welcome you to speak to us collectively as a group, to speak to us individually, um, whatever you have for us, whatever it is that you have for us, God, we really, really don't want to miss it, so help our hearts to be tuned in. You're so kind to uh, come prepared, <laughs> something for us. Yeah, we don't want to miss it. If you have challenge, if you have encouragement, um, if you have blessing, we don't want to miss it. So Lord, uh, would you make us aware of what you're already doing in the room? Help us to lean into it and receive whatever it is you have for us. God, you're so, so good. Would you let your kingdom come and your will be done in this room, even as it is in heaven? Amen. Amen. All righty, y'all. Um, thanks so much to the musicians. That was really good for leading us in worship. Uh, we're in the series called uprising, and I'm going to do one more lousy recap, okay? And so if you're a guest, this is for you. Our offering to you is a lousy recap that probably won't help. You'll just have to get the podcast. But um, this chart is probably looking painfully familiar by now, Um, but we're going to paint with the broadest possible strokes here. But when there is an uprising of Christianity in a place, a place where people don't know Jesus and then in large scale, in mass, people come to find life in Jesus. It's an incredible thing. And then out of that, when Christianity grows in a place, um, there's a culture around it that emerges from Christianity called Christendom. That's the second wave that follows. And again, none of this is to scale, but there's a second wave that follows Christendom. Christendom is not Christianity. Christendom is the culture that emerges in a place where Christianity is the dominant religion, the dominant worldview. Christendom is good, and Christendom is bad, okay? We can't be overly simplistic. But when more and more people begin to give their life to Jesus, the values of God get worked into a society. Christendom society emerges. And then out of that, um, historically, the, the facts here are just really, really remarkable, um, there's phenomenal societal growth. Just incredible societal advancements have happened in the wake of the establishment of Christendom in societies around the globe throughout history. Um, basic human decency goes mainstream when Christendom is um, uh, prevalent in a society. And so um, that's our, our broad overview. Now, I have made a random, wild, arbitrary to me guess about where we might be on this scale. And if you go back and listen to it, you might buy, buy it, you might not. It really is the take it or leave it part. But I think this dotted blue line is maybe something like where we're at. I think to some extent we're beginning to see the cracks begin to show Uh, in our society. We're beginning to experience a decline in societal growth because just as these things rise, they also fall. When Christendom rises, there's Christian societies emerge and then post-Christendom societies uh, emerge. And so as we see the downward turn in societal growth to some extent, I do not, by the way, think that the sky is falling. The truth is I'm not talking about um, the recession that is maybe coming or inflation or or the pandemic. I'm not talking about any of those things when I say I see a, a decline in societal growth. What I mostly mean when I say that is, and again, this is we're still in the take it or leave it category. Um, what I mostly mean is just a profound emotional immaturity. I, I just see in our society, we have no capacity to handle conflict. And um, that's a, maybe the biggest single thing that concerns me about where we're at. I think the cracks are beginning to show. But 
if we are indeed beginning to see something of a downward turn in societal growth, well, then that means Christianity has been in decline for quite a long time. And waves come up and waves come down. The good news is, even if we're all the way down following that red line where it meets the blue line, what that means is hopefully we are set up for a new wave, a new uprising of what the Lord has for us. Um, yeah, you probably should just get the podcast. Okay, Haggai chapter 2, let me read you four verses. And hey, today, a um, little less intense today. Uh, honestly, we're wrapping this thing up. We're going we're gonna to take some time to reflect, to try and get our thoughts around some, some sort of takeaway ideas from this series. That's what we're doing. A little less ambitious than usual. Here are the four verses for the day. And this is the end of the book of Haggai, which we've been walking through together. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Big day for him. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders, horses, and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword, which is interesting. He's describing an incredible military victory that they don't even have to fight that their enemies are literally, literally imploding upon themselves. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of Armies, <clears throat> I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, my servant, this is the Lord's declaration, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. Okay, so uh, Zerubbabel was uh, the new governor in Jerusalem, and uh, he was raised in Babylon. In fact, the word Zerubbabel literally means out of Babylon. So that's very on the nose. Zerubbabel came from Babylon, but he was a direct descendant of King David. From the line of David, that's incredibly important. So um, he was from Babylon, but he was a Jew with royal blood. And the reason why that was so important is because the word that the Lord had given his people was that the Messiah would come and that the Messiah would come from the family of David. And so God's great sweeping plan to bring hope to the world through his people hinged on the Messiah coming and coming through the line of David. And what this is showing us is that through Zerubbabel, God's plan is getting back on track. Okay, the, the Babylonian exile was a significant detour. But this is things moving back in the way that they should be. So it's a big deal. So the promises from God in this text are basically this. We already looked at it. Your enemies will ultimately implode, and you won't even have to fight the wars. And out of this whole like Babylonian exile debacle, God is going to reestablish his people. And most importantly, things will get back on track for the Messiah to come. Back on track for Jesus, which is why this whole thing mattered. One of the things I've tried to be very clear about through the course of the series, I understand that the people in this letter, in this prophetic book, that they are building a temple, and that's sort of what the activity is, but this is not about building a temple. This is not about preserving Jewish culture, although that was very important, and they were coming back and reestablishing Jewish culture in a place. It was, that was important. It was not about that. It was about paving the way for Jesus to come and do his thing, right? Um, and then at the end of this text, he adds this incredible promise about a signet ring. Just a second here on that. Um, that There's some cultural distance there. Let's try and close that gap. Um, signet rings are not a thing in our um, context, but uh, in their context, a signet ring was a king's signature. So documents were signed by the king, not with a written signature pen and ink, um, but by pressing his signet ring with it, a unique design for every king, into a wax seal um, on a document, and that was the seal of the king. The signet ring was literally a stamp of approval from the king. So God told Zerubbabel that he would make him like God's signet ring, a signet ring of the Most High because he was chosen, which is really a way that God was saying to him, man, this is a tough go. Listen, I'm with you. I'm with, I've got your back every single step. This isn't your plan. This is my plan. I'm going to show you the way. You're going to be led every step, which must have been great to hear. Now, um, we have been talking about how our situation has some real overlap between the situation that the, uh, the remnant in Jerusalem 
we're in that's being discussed in uh, this book, Haggai. Um, and I think there's something very true and real about that comparison. I want us to take that comparison very seriously, but also, just sort of a pastoral note here, I don't want us to take that too far. So let's talk for that. I'll talk about that for uh, a minute. Um, uh, just like the Israelites, they remember they returned in order to establish Jerusalem. Only a small percentage, a remnant of the Israelites who were in Babylon returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Um, they were a remnant. Um, and in the same way, I believe that we are, as a church and other places as well, we are a remnant, um, that we are standing among the ruins of something that fell, just as they were, and just as they were, standing among the ruins of something that fell at its own hand. Um, we've been talking about the decline of Christianity, the, the fall of Christendom. Uh, two weeks ago, if you were here, I was pretty explicit. Christendom didn't collapse because God fell off his throne and his plan spiraled out of control. This is all part of his plan. Uh, Christendom collapsed um, because it was defiled. The culture that built up around Christianity was defiled. It lost its way. It became overly concerned with power and influence and institutional control and not about simple, heartfelt devotion to the Lord. And as a result, it crumbled. It crumbled under the weight of its own compromises and hypocrisies. It crumbled. Um, well, that's what happened in Israel too. Um, the Israelites, um, at their own hand, because they failed to listen to the prophets, um, their society uh, crumbled. And just like the remnant then, we are a remnant now. And I believe we are given the same task as they were given, which is to rebuild. Um, and this time to build it undefiled. Um, so there's something very hopeful, something very hard about that, something very hopeful about that. God's renewing all things. That's his move. Beauty from ashes. That's his deal. That's how he works. That's always what he's up to. That's exactly what he's up to with us. Beauty from ashes, renewing all things. There's a lot of genuine parallels between us and what we see happening in the book of Haggai, um, but there are a few ways in which this is different from the folks back then as well. I want to highlight those. First of all, um, in the Old Testament, we're talking about an ancient theocracy that is very, very different. And a literal throne needed to be established. Um, and that's not where we're at. We're in a modern democracy, and we aren't troubled, fortunately, with of trying to establish a new throne of power. And, and this is why. This is the good news. Um, Haggai, the temple, Zerubbabel, Joshua, all of them, they were all just pointing to Jesus. And it's very important. The Old Testament is always looking ahead and pointing to the story of our Savior, Jesus. And so, um, just in the, the three main characters in this letter, you have Zerubbabel, that name means literally out of Babylon. You have Joshua, or Yeshua, that's Hebrew for Jesus, it means salvation. And Haggai means festival, feast, or celebration. So we put that together, it says, we're out of Babylon, Jesus is coming, let's party. Okay, that's the theme. But it's, it's actually, it's even better for us because we are anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. We have him. We have the whole story. They just had the introduction to the story. We have the whole story. And we don't have to appoint a new leader to show us the way. Jesus is that leader. He has already come and established his kingdom on this earth, if you were waiting for me to stand up one day and say, I am the true and greater Zerubbabel, I hope you weren't holding your breath. It's never happening. The remnant in Israel were led by Haggai, Joshua, Zerubbabel. Remember from week one, that's a prophet, a priest, and a king. And we are now led by Jesus, the ultimate, true, and absolute prophet, priest, and king. That's different. We aren't paving the way for his arrival the way they were. We are paving the way for his return. That's different too. Another big one is we can look back at the story and tell exactly where they were in the narrative because we've got hindsight. We know they were, they were at the end of the exile, right? So that 70 years, we're at the end of that exile. We're at the start of the construction of the second temple. We're five centuries from Jesus. We're eight centuries from Christendom. We're 25 centuries from now. 
Okay, we can place it. It was there, and that's what happened next. We don't have that in our context. We are in a place where Christianity is in decline, where Christendom has collapsed, and we are at least, you know, to the extent that you buy what I'm saying with the graph here, <laughs> um, we are at least positioned for a new uprising. We're at least in place for it. We know that. But we don't know what's next. I don't know what's next. Maybe, maybe we're going to see a great revival, like any day. Like maybe, maybe any, any moment. Maybe any second. I just felt like I should wait for it just in case it was, like right then. <laughs> but nothing happened, so just felt like the thing to do. Um, but we're, and that's, honestly, that's exactly how I feel. Like, as we're going to see, revival history is heating up, okay? As we get closer to the end of days, remember we said we're in the living in the last days, but we said we've been living in the last days since the time of Jesus. So I don't know how last these, are, these days are. I just know that they're more last than the last ones were, okay? These are the laster days. And as the days, the la- these last days become more and more last, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not sure I'm with myself. As these days become more and more the last days, what we're seeing is the waves of revival history are coming in greater succession. They're coming in rapid fire. History is heating up. And so I have a tremendous sense of expectation that we will see a remarkable move of God. And maybe even very, very soon. Or, I want to be very honest and very clear, I don't know, maybe it's the beginning of a new dark ages. I don't know. (laughs) One of my concerns has been that you get the impression that I do know or that I think that I do know. Now, this sermon series, it's true, has had a prophetic edge. That's real, but but don't leave thinking that I know what's next. I I don't. But that said, and I'm sort of hinting at this already, it's kind of what I want to talk about. I I think it's really helpful for us to consider the trends. Um, In the vineyard, one of our great values is to see what the Father is doing and then look to join him in what is already happening. We don't try to conjure up or manufacture. We look and see what is he doing and how can we join him in what he's doing. And it's helpful for us to see the trends, what's happening in our world, so that we can see the ways in which God is moving and then join him. Okay? Uh, I said that Christianity is in the decline in the United States. That's true. Um, but throughout the world, we go big scale, pull the camera back, Christianity is growing but like just barely. It's really flat, but, but if it's it, it just barely. So for example, population growth last year was 1.03%. The growth of Christianity last year was 1.13%. One-tenth of 1%. That's little. Now we're dealing with billions of people, so it ends up being a, lot of, a big number what you're left with, but when you pull the camera back and look at from the honest, most honest lens, you see that Christianity is essentially flat with just a slight increase. Um, with that in mind, and there's another thing I want to I point out. I think it's very important because I think people are really confused about this, myself included, to be honest. Um, Christianity is growing slowly. It is also growing much faster than the irreligious category. That's important for you to hear. What I think we're often told is that people everywhere are just giving up on religion. They're just out, okay? They've had enough. They've been hurt, whatever. They fill in the blanks there. They think it, they think it you know, runs against the grain of science or reason, which, of course, is not even remotely true. But that's what we're being told, and people are becoming irreligious like crazy. Well, here's the thing. The irreligious category is growing, but nowhere near as fast as the population is. It's growing at 0.53%. The population growing at one point, or... Oh boy, 1.03%. So the truth is it's in pretty rapid decline. And here's something I found absolutely remarkable. I had to read it several times and then research it further to find out that it was actually true because this was stunning to me. Um, There are fewer atheists in the world today than there were 50 years ago, and the population is more than doubled in that amount of time. So I think we get the picture, oh, the atheists, they're everywhere, you know, and they're growing like crazy because people are fed up. But the truth is, the truth is, 
there are fewer people reporting themselves to be atheists than there were 50 years ago, even though the population has more than doubled in that amount of time. And the fact is, however many millions of them are left, it's a very much sort of a, 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 dying, a dying reality in our context. And as I've told you in the past, I don't, I mean, I'm not trying to be mean, but I don't actually even believe in atheists. I think um, the Bible says eternity is written into our souls, that God has made himself evident through his creation to every person so that we are without excuse. It's Romans chapter 1. I believe the Bible teaches that every person ultimately knows this ain't it. There's something beyond the here and the now. And so I don't even, I, I think atheists, are telling the truth. I don't think they're lying. I just think that they don't know that they actually believe what they say they don't believe in. Which is that there is a king of glory. There is something beyond all of this. There is a creator. There is a sustainer. Um, and ultimately a, a king. Um, there's a false dichotomy that gets set up um, between rational and irrational. People say there are things that we can um, through science and other forms of observation, we can rationally explain. And anything that cannot be rationally explained is therefore irrational. That's wrong. First of all, our capacity to explain things is not infinite, and therefore the fact that we can't explain it doesn't make it irrational. That's one. And here's the second one. It completely ignores a third and often overlooked category. This is a real word, by the way, because it doesn't sound real. It's called the supra-rational, which is there are realities that extend beyond the realm of rational thought. It's just a fact. Science cannot measure or explain beauty, or wonder, or consciousness, or what is incredibly stirring about music or art. There is the supra-rational, that which extends beyond our capacity to explain through rational lenses. And we, again, inherently, all of us, we know the supra-rational is baked into our very core. But the sermon's not about that at all. I just wanted to say those things. Back to the point. Um, church growth, as I said, is relatively flat. Here in the United States um, and around the globe, though, this is very important for you guys to see. It's really the main thing I want you to see today, is that there is a very clear divergence. There are two paths right now within the church, okay? Um, that's broad strokes, I know, but there is a very clear path, a, a fork in the road uh, that is happening, and the results are stunning. So, here are the two paths. Number one, we have churches uh, throughout the world that have let go of the authority of the Bible. They have no longer held onto it as having the final absolute authority, and they've rejected the ongoing power and work of the Holy Spirit. Hear me. Those churches are in, like, a really steep decline. I, and really, there's no point in me trying to sugarcoat this, guys. They are in utter collapse. Like the bottom is falling out. Like it's really historically bad. Okay. On the other hand, there are churches that are fully embracing the authority of Scripture. And they're embracing the ongoing work and empowering of the Holy Spirit. And those churches, hear me, are absolutely exploding with growth in a way for which there is no other historical precedent. They're growing in a way that is like the world has never seen before. I'm going to explain this further. But let's just, let me just sort of restate that again. There are those who reject the authority of the Bible. Those who have said, actually, you know what? I know better. <laughs> I know better. The Bible says this, but I say this, and now we're done. We're going to go with my thing. God, I got this. I got this. Or we can do the church thing without the power of the Holy Spirit. We can live a Christian life that's fruitful without the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't need the ongoing work of the Spirit. God, back off. We got this. Again, those churches are dying. Not just individual churches, but whole denominations and movements. But the ones who most fully recognize that they don't got anything on their own. 
They're actively seeking the truth of Scripture as their final authority and the power of the Holy Spirit to fuel their ministries like we see in the book of Acts, the ones who say, God, we don't got this, you got this. Those churches are growing at a completely historically unprecedented rate all over the world. Let me explain it. In the year 1900, there was no such thing as a Pentecostal or charismatic church. If you said that, people would just look at you like you were weird. They'd, no, it was not. It was zero. It was not a thing. But then there's this fellow who came along, um, Mr. William J. Seymour. William Seymour was a black man who had been trying desperately to learn about the Holy Spirit's power, like we see in the book of Acts. I say he was trying to learn because he kept, it was a real struggle. He kept running into this roadblock, which is that he kept getting kicked out of churches because of the color of his skin. He wouldn't even be let in the door. It happened to him again and again. I said, by the way, that Christendom collapsed because it had grown defiled. That didn't happen overnight. It has been defiled to some extent since the beginning, and racism, unfortunately, is a part of it. So a sincere man desperate to learn more about the power of the Holy Spirit had trouble even getting welcomed into a church so that he could learn more. Finally, he found a place where they were having a seminar on the subject and they let him sit outside by an open window and listen in. From there, he learned what, he was, already, what was already stirring in his spirit. This theory that the things that God did in the Bible he would still do today. That we could be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That we would then receive power from on high, that's Acts 1.8, in order that we might share the good news with the world around us and then ultimately join him in the renewal of all things. Um, and then William Seymour, while everybody else talked about it, decided he'd go out and give it a try. And when he did... The Lord met him in their gathering. This is the Azusa Street Revival. It was a remarkable outpouring of God's Spirit. It lasted for years, and then it became the birthplace of what is now known as the Pentecostal and Charismatic Movement. I'm going to throw some numbers by you. It's hard to understand the scale of these. Try to, but as best you can, hold on to them. That movement went from zero in 1900 to about 650 million people today. That's about 8.4% of the world's population. And just so you know, it's currently speeding up, not slowing down. In the year 2050, the world's population will still be less than 10 billion people, but there will be more than a billion Pentecostals and Charismatics. That's more than 10% of the world's population from zero in 150 years. Now, if you were a historian or a sociologist and you were hearing this for the first time, you would have to be picked up out of your chair. I understand those numbers. I can't, I don't understand the scope of them. But let me try and give you something as a point of comparison. I've been saying um, that we need a new uprising of devotion and power and hope, and that maybe we're in position to that. And, and what we're looking for, what we're hoping for, is that we might see something like what we saw in the first apostolic age. Remember talking about that? The first 300 years in the history of the church. Listen, in those 300 years, Christianity went from zero to 10% of the population of the Roman Empire which was about a fourth of the world's population at the time. That's an estimate. It's tough. You go back that far to get estimates, but about a fourth. So what I'm seeing is a current uprising that will reach, think about it, 10% of the world's population from zero in half the time that the first great uprising, the apostolic age, reached 10% of only a quarter of the world's population. That's about 2.5% in 300 years. And what we're seeing now is 10% in 
in half that time. Are y'all tracking? From every angle that I can see, the current uprising actually vastly exceeds what happened in the first apostolic age. So, if you've been with me along the way here, you might be going, I don't understand how that could possibly be true. (laughs) How could that be true at a time when the growth of Christianity the world over is essentially flat? How can that be? Guys, that's the hard part. What that illustrates is how rapidly how rapidly the collapse is of churches that reject the authority of the Bible and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. They are collapsing so fantastically that it is enough to offset the greatest explosion of church growth of any religion at any point in the history of the world is being offset by how profoundly the churches who are rejecting the Bible and the work of the Holy Spirit are failing. So like I said, it's like a really clear divergence. There's a real door number one or door number two situation, guys. It's extreme, and the numbers do not lie. All right, I want to read you guys a quote. Um, So the original catalyst that sort of got me down the road of wanting to do this teaching series was a book called uh, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission. I would love to tell you who wrote it, but I can't. It was written by a collective of intellectuals, and so um, they didn't give their names. So um, some smart people got together and wrote some stuff down. And uh, that was the catalyst that led ultimately to, to this series. And I highlighted that book and then I got another copy because it fell apart, and, and I tore that one up. I took our, I took our staff for a two-day book report. <laughs> I apologize afterwards. <laughs> I was just a two-day book report. Sit and listen. Um, there was so much that jumped out at me from that book. But this was the quote that just, it's the, every time I came across it, I just had to stop and sit for a bit. Because I think it represents something deeply, deeply true. It's this, holiness Prayer, humility, hidden acts of charity or love. These are the spiritual means by which the church is visibly upheld. Now listen. When these are diminished, the outward expressions of the church, of the church's life, grow tenuous and liable to failure. The church is never in a more fragile situation than when she seems strong, but has lost her deep rootedness in the invisible world. This danger can be hard to see in a Christendom age. This is very important. In Christendom, the invisible expressions of our faith, and what I mean by that is you and Jesus alone. You and the king of all in your prayer closet seeking the face of God. You giving and serving people as an invisible expression of charity, hidden acts of kindness, in other words, your left hand not knowing what your right hand is doing. The things that never get reported, the things that nobody other than you ever know about. Those realities, you walking with Jesus, okay? That is the structure that holds the church together. It's nonsense without that. It holds it together. And in a Christendom society, people are able to go with the flow. Those invisible expressions can fall to the background and even out of our lives but there's so much cultural momentum that the church can just continue to grow and grow and grow. And what that can leave us thinking is, okay, maybe this sort of on-the-fringe, marginal faith, where I, I mean, 
I, I mean, I'm in, I'm in on the Jesus thing, but he's way off on the edge of my life and not at the center of who I am. Not really ascended to the throne of my life. Like, I've mentally ascended, but I haven't really been walking in true allegiance to him. That can happen while the church grows. That can happen throughout a church while that church continues to grow and it can leave us thinking, I guess the marginal on the fringe faith thing like is fine. It's fine. Like being less than devoted, less than wholehearted is just, it's fine. I'm going to read the second part of that quote again. The church is never in a more fragile situation than when she seems strong but has lost her deep rootedness in the invisible world. My concern is that the church has been in exactly that situation for a long time. And, and now when we say what happened as we see the remaining vestiges of a collapsed Christendom, well, what's happening is the bill is coming due on that. We've seen the church grow and grow in the United States while the core tenets of our faith, walking with Jesus, and loving our neighbor have faded ever more into the background. And here's the thing, guys. Like, good music and clever sermons and slick programs, they can, like, keep it all afloat for a while. But if the people of Jesus don't walk with Jesus, it's just a facade. It's just a game. If we aren't anchored in the Bible if we aren't empowered by the Holy Spirit, then we don't actually have anything to offer people. Or I should say, we don't have anything to offer people that can't also be offered by anyone else. Because at that point, this is just good advice. And good advice is good to a point, but it doesn't renew all things. We have to genuinely know and follow Jesus. Or this is just a big charade. And let me tell you something. I am like pretty fired up and encouraged these days. I know I'm more subdued today. I'm worn out from that conference. <clears throat> um, I, I'm, I'm a preacher and therefore prone to hyperbole. I don't want to overstate it. But I actually think it's true. I have never been this excited about what God's doing in the life of our church. And this is, it's because I believe so much what I'm saying right now. And what I've seen, and look, I, we could tell some stories. We could say, oh, you know, the numbers are up, and we're, you know, we recovered from the pandemic, and that's really good. And people have gotten healed, and that's really good. And, and people have gotten saved, and that's really good. There's some metrics, okay, that we can look to and go, oh, that's encouraging. But that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm excited that we're getting a building. That's awesome. It's working out. Okay, we're still on track to close August 31st, by the way. I'm fired up. Okay, that's great. Not what I'm talking about at all. You know, I'm so fired up. Like, I think more than I've ever been, I am fired up. Because every single week and virtually every single day, one of you come to me and give me a testimony about how for the first time, you're really walking with Jesus. Like, left foot, right foot, day by day, hour by hour, and that your heart increasingly is turning to Jesus throughout the day like the needle of a compass returns to the north. And so, yeah, of course, we're seeing more people come and more souls being saved. And, and God is giving us this opportunity through the building and, and, and people are getting healed. It's like, yeah, 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 all that stuff. It's all great. It is all downriver from what's really happening and has been happening for about a year and a half, I think is increasingly people in this church have said, just enough of the marginal Christianity where God just sort of flutters around in the back of my mind but doesn't rule every hour of every day. Enough. I'm going to walk with Jesus. And in so doing, we are setting the stage for an uprising because these are the things that God fuels. These are the things that he intervenes and, and, and gives his power to. So, um, for today, as we wrap up this series, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to repeat um, something that I've said a few times now. Um, 
if we're going to be part of a new uprising and maybe even play a small part in bringing it here, right? There's already a tremendous uprising that's happening. We're going to play a part in bringing it here, a part in joining God and the renewal of all things in East Tennessee. And guys, we don't have to reinvent anything. We don't have to start over from scratch and say it's a completely new reality. We don't. We just have to go back to our core. And we have to choose the right path. And honestly, in the final analysis, after several weeks of looking through this, I think the path ends up looking pretty clear, which is this. Number one, stop playing games with Scripture. Embrace fully the authority of God's Word, chapter and verse, front to back, as the final arbiter on all matters, to have the final say in every issue. We are nothing without the Word of God. Number two, stop putting your hope and your effort in trying to prop up a collapsing Christendom. It is a colossal waste of time and energy. We don't serve Christendom, we serve Jesus. Everything good flows out of us walking with Jesus, not trying to hold on to institutional power. If you're doing it, stop. Number three, and this is what's already happening and needs to happen all the more and will carry us through the good and the bad. Number three, develop your inner life with the Lord the invisible stuff that's in the quote. The humility and the kindness and the charity and the love and the hour by hour walking with Jesus and then loving your neighbor. The invisible stuff that doesn't get reported on, that nobody knows, the just you and Jesus stuff. Walk with Jesus. Number four, start seeking and relying utterly upon the power of the Holy Spirit. It is by Him and Him alone that we are able to make disciples of all nations and bring the gospel to those around us who so desperately need us to do that. Amen? All right, David's going to come on up and help me close this out. One more idea. Um, the most popular verse in the Bible is no longer John 3.16. I think it might be because the guy with the sign just sort of moved on and did something else. I don't know why. Um, instead, the most popular verse in the Bible, according to, you know, some stuff I read, I don't know, is uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. Y'all know that one? That's a good one. Um, you know, the plans that I have for you, hope and a future, it's, it's, a, it's a good one. Um, <clears throat> interesting backstory, though, to that verse. Um, it actually got... It started with a false prophecy. Um, there was a guy named Hananiah who at the beginning of the Babylonian exile, we've been talking about the end of the Babylonian exile. This is at the beginning. Um, and the Jews are really bummed out because they were in Babylon and they didn't want to be. And there's this guy, Hananiah, got up in church and he said, I have a prophecy from the Lord, good news. This exile is only going to last two years which is a very popular thing to say when everybody thought it was going to last 70. And then Jeremiah, a real prophet, <clears throat> writes a letter to God's people to correct them. Um, and the letter said, among other things, nope, it's going to be the full 70 years, just like all of the legit prophets have been saying for a very long time. And it's in this letter that he adds this really famous encouragement about God having good plans. And that context really, really matters. Because the context portrays to us that God's plans happen in his timing, not in ours. Let me reiterate what I've said now several times. I don't know when the next uprising is coming. History seems to be heating up, so I'm hopeful. Maybe it's soon. Maybe not. Maybe it's today. Or maybe it's generations away. I don't know. 
But either way, let's not lose the big picture. His plans are good. He's renewing all things. Okay, let me read verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster. To give you a hope and a future. I want to pause here and tell you something that makes me very sad, which is that most people stop reading there. And they go, yeah, that's good. That is positive. Put that on a coffee cup. Put it in the file marked true and keep going. Um, You should keep reading. The next three verses reveal to us how we actually see those good plans come to pass. They go like this. You will call to me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When, it's a big conditional statement here. When and if you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I'll restore your fortunes. Man, that's clear. So, you know, for all the long sermons and all the vocabulary words and all the stuff we've gone through for the month plus, in the end, guys, no shortcuts here. Our fortunes are restored when we stop the, honestly, kind of silly games where we act like God is at the center of our lives, but He actually isn't. That, that silliness. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be mean. I, I just want to point out that it's silly. Like, if you ascend to any of the truth in Scripture about Jesus, to any of it, then you know it's kind of an all-or-nothing gig. Like, there's no half measures anywhere in there. There is no part of us logically, and we're not logical beings, at least of all me. So again, I'm not trying to be mean, but if there's any part of us that goes, yes, this is true, Jesus is the Son of God. He died that I might be forgiven, welcomed into His family, and now I live my life for His glory. There is no logical space left for me to then conclude, I'm going to put my faith on the back burner of my life. There's no way to conclude logically anything other than He should be the absolute throbbing center of everything. But it happens a lot. In the end, we're talking about let's, let's get out of Christendom mode and into apostolic mode and off-roading for Jesus and all of that. Yeah, in the end, what we're really saying is just stop the silliness where we act like God's at the center, but He actually isn't. And like I said, I think God's stirring things up in the life of our church because so many of you in the last year or two have said, yep, I'm out on the fringe thing. I'm going to walk with him every day. And it's bearing fruit. When we do that and genuinely seek the Lord with our whole hearts, then he keeps his promise to us, which is, I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. That's what we must do on our own. The invisible stuff that holds up a church. The stuff that's just you and Jesus and nobody else. It is the core that holds this whole thing together. We must do that on our own. And we must do that together. That's what we're doing tonight. At 7 o'clock. When we meet here for worship and prayer. It's going to be so simple. It's going to be David and his guitar. Simple can be good. I'm not saying it won't be good. It'll be great. David and his guitar and a handful of songs... I got a spiel that I hope to keep short, and we'll see. And the rest of the time, we're just going to seek the presence of the Lord. It's what we must do together. It's what we must do on our own. And I believe we see an uprising in the process. Okay. Um, Selah. A couple minutes to reflect. Let me ask you, and do this a little bit differently today. Let me ask you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads and 
Usually I say do that if it's helpful. Now I'm going to ask everyone if they could do that, please. It's very, very rare that I ask you guys to respond in a physical way, like come forward or fill out a thing or raise a hand. In a minute, I'm actually going to ask folks to raise their hands. And then just so you know, I'm not going to ask anything else. Like that'll be the end of it. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. But I am going to ask some folks to raise their hands because I can't get away from the idea that it just matters that we do. And here's the question I'm asking, and if the answer is yes, in a moment, I'll ask you to raise your hand. But the question is, is there a part of you that frankly just feels convicted by the Holy Spirit when I talk about our faith getting pushed into the background? Where you go, you know what, obviously, if I believe what I say I believe about Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior of all, then he should be at the center of everything, and if I'm honest... He often isn't. And maybe you heard the part that I said where a lot of people in our church, like I think hundreds, have said in the last year or two, have said, enough already with the fringe marginal faith. I'm, I'm all in. Maybe you're going, yeah, it's, it's time for me to make the same conclusion. Enough with the on the fringe. Enough with Jesus on cruise control in the background of my life. I'm going to make him the center of everything. And I want to do that today. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else, but I do want to ask you, if that's where you're at right now, would you raise your hand right now? Amen. You put your hands down. Just in case you think it was just you, that was a bunch of people threw their hand in the air who said, you know what, all right, enough. (laughs) And look, I know all we did was put our hands in the air. But guys, if the people who put their hands in the air really mean it, and then now turn and walk with Jesus, there's enough hands that just went in the air to turn the world upside down. Because God did it with 12, and we had a lot more than that. Uprisings aren't built with big dramatic productions and well-timed keychains and changes and shouting pastors they are built when the people of God decide I'm going to walk with Jesus and build the invisible foundation that carries the gospel to the world it's built on hopefully the sincerity of what a bunch of you guys just did so King Jesus let it be may it be true of us Amen.